Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Blue Earth Podcast, which is a part of Future Frogmen, a nonprofit fostering future leaders to protect the ocean. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. And today on our show, we have Peter Neal of the World Ocean Observatory. Welcome to the show, Peter. I always start with a love of the ocean and some history on our guests. And I was just wondering if you could share some of your history for our listeners. Uh, well, I'm an elder, and a long time ago, I was I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, about as far away from the ocean as you can, can get in, in North America. And I would go down to the Mississippi River uh, when I was a kid, and I'd just sit and watch the river. It was a kind of amazing um, uh, access to water uh, that then ultimately I now realize is all part of a system that connects the entire world, uh, that the river systems are as much a part of the ocean as the ocean is part of the river systems, it's interconnected. So I suddenly began to realize a kind of interconnectivity. I left St. Louis uh, and went to both coasts uh, and have have never looked back. Now, when I was doing my research for the show, I read a story in the New York Times from June of 1984 that mentioned the Marine Science Consortium. And you played a big part in the development of that and a number of other programs that tie education to the ocean. Can you talk a little bit about that time? I moved to New Haven, uh, taught at Yale University in the, in the English department, uh, fiction writing and autobiography, but I uh, had a child and uh, needed to make more of a living. Uh, and so I became head of something called Schooner Incorporated in New Haven, Connecticut, that had a sailing vessel that took young people uh, to sea for sea experiencing in science. Uh, it was a it was a small not-for-profit, very enterprising, extremely effective, but it needed to partner, and so I created a consortium uh, that that took the uh, the New Haven public school system and the University uh, of uh, Connecticut system through uh, Southern Connecticut, uh, and we became affiliated into a larger entity. Um, the, uh, the university, we worked together to build a research station, to require a research station. I was head of a land trust in Atlanta, Connecticut, on Long Island Sound, and we were able to uh, receive uh, an island uh, in the Thimble Islands uh, uh, near New Haven. It became a uh, active research site, still is, I'm told. Uh, and then I also founded a school, a public high school, co-founded uh, with, a, with an educator named George Ford. And we raised some money and founded a public high school, a, a magnet school at the time, uh, for inner city kids to, in which the entire curriculum was, was marine related. So sports was, was, was uh, swimming and shop was boat building and everything was essentially integrated with, with the idea that you were looking at the world uh, through an oceanic perspective. Uh, that school still exists. Uh, it became a, a regional magnet and started bringing um, white uh, students back from the suburbs into the city because they were motivated by the theme and by the efficiency of the school. Uh, it was it was it, it, it remains a, a a wonderful thing to have been associated with. Uh, when I later moved on to New York and was head of the South Street Seaport Museum. Uh, I co-founded its twin. I co-founded another uh, school called the the Harbor School, still also exists on Governor's Island, New York. Uh, And uh, uh, the kids all have to go to school by ferry, uh, right in the heart of one of the greatest urban concentrations 
surrounded by water. Uh, it, it, it was something that grew out of its own kind of organic logic, uh, but it extended my interest into sea experience and experiential education. Uh, and um, uh, those two schools, I still think, are two of the most important things I've, I've done uh, in my career. Yeah, well, I have to say the Sound School is, you know, very impressive and Southern uh, Connecticut State does work still with the Sound School. And we still do research on the Outer Island in the Thimble Islands. And um, the Harbor School also in New York City is part of the Billion Oyster Project, which is another great program that is, you know, trying to uh, mitigate some of the uh, you know, toxins and pollutants and help the harbor by raising oysters, you know, seabeds uh, in New York, which is, you know, just such a great program. So I, they're very uh, wonderful things, I should say, you know, as far as connecting education in the ocean that you definitely should be uh, quite proud of uh, because you've definitely left your thumbprint there on the areas that you've lived in. And you left the you you left for a little bit though, and you went down to Washington, DC for a job in maritime preservation. Uh, what was it like for you? And you know, what happened after your time there? Well, I learned that I hated Washington. Um, that was the first thing. It was such a odd culture. Uh, I commuted. The congressman would be on the same airplane. And so I got to know people who were in government. Um, I lasted about a year. Um, uh, I never had to, uh, I, I house sat for people. Uh, I stayed in one hotel, a very beautiful hotel in downtown uh, central Washington, D.C. And they just had a standing room for me there. I would just, I, eventually I slept in every room in the hotel. Um, and the question is, how do you do something in the job? I was, I was director of maritime preservation for the National Trust for Historic Preservation. That was unusual in itself because the National Trust is mostly a land and, and uh, uh, housing, architecture-based organization. It preserves the great sites and buildings of, of the United States. Uh, it was amazing. It had a program. Uh, and we, I went around the country and I began to meet all the people, uh, the enthusiasts all around the United States and Canada and ultimately abroad who are mesmerized by old ships and they, they find them and they collect them and they restore them uh, and they become the heart of a maritime museums around the world. There are three or 400 of them uh, now. And um, so I became introduced to this whole part of, of the heritage contribution. And I realized that basically maritime uh, is a hidden story within the American story. Uh, just as it is in, in the, 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 the global story. I mean, the world from the very beginning was discovered and explored and settled by sea. Uh, the first trade routes uh, were by sea. And so you have this enormously um, powerful connecting natural system called the ocean, um, which has affected the culture and traditions and histories uh, of every nation on earth. And it, I suddenly realized that it was kind of a forgotten or certainly overlooked cultural vector. And if I, if I learned anything from the year in Washington, uh, it was that, that I became committed to that idea. And everything that has followed since then was pretty much dedicated to public understanding uh, of the importance 
of the ocean contribution to the history of states uh, and nations. Yeah, and when you talk about your work there and then how it kind of influenced everything that came, you then transitioned to a job uh, at the South Street Seaport Museum in New York, where you were for, I believe, over 20 years. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and how you grew the programming at the museum there. Well, South Street was the center, was the upper center of maritime enterprise in the 19th century in the United States. Uh, this is the, 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 the stories of the, the early trade, uh, certainly immigration, uh, and acculturation. What was happening then was essentially the exchange of goods and people and ideas. And the South Street Seaport Museum, which was based in Lower Manhattan, just below the Brooklyn Bridge on the East River, um, had the historic buildings, uh, 18th and 19th century buildings, were still in place. Uh, and it was the center of a, a historical preservation movement uh, uh, at which the museum was the center. It was surrounded at the time by, by a Rouse Company development. It was somewhat controversial, but the museum thrived and we had 3,000 tons of ships, one of the largest collection of historic ships in the world. And we, we sailed them. We, we restored them to sailing tradition. Uh, and each ship had an astonishing history, uh, trading back and forth between Europe and South America. Uh, was the, the Mark Peking, the, the full rig ship Wavertree, did something like 14 round the world voyages to Australia and back on, with sort of great bulk cargo. Uh, we had two over 100 year, 100 year old schooners, century old schooners. Uh, we at one point took uh, the Letty G. Howard, a, 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 a Gloucester built schooner. Um, uh, with young young uh, uh, young boys aboard, they were uh, adolescents that were coming out of foster homes. It was an astonishingly successful social program, where the values that are associated with the ocean were, were communicated. You know, direct experience with nature, um, the understanding of authority, uh, the understanding of competence, uh, the understanding of teamwork. Uh, all of these values are are learned almost immediately. Uh, on a sailing vessel, uh, and you, you you understand very quickly that the integrity of everybody relies on the competence of a single knot. If one knot is badly tied and breaks or unravels at a critical moment, everyone is put at risk. So there's there's an, an innate, intuitive understanding within the authentic experience of what it means to be competent, what it means to understand um, authority. Uh, what it means to, to uh, interact with the power of nature uh, and to experience all that with uh, surrounded by a group of, of, of other people from all different origins uh, upon whom you, you must rely uh, to survive. So the museum um, became an educational institution rather than a place just for collecting. We had very distinguished collections. They were, they were expanded uh, enormously during those two decades. Uh, but our secret was that we, uh, we applied the interpretation differently and much more aggressively. So taking kids sailing in a vessel was a way to raise, raise the funds that not only build our reputation, but provided the resources to keep those ships uh, in sailing condition. They're expensive. Uh, and so you need to find a revenue stream, and by using them and applying them in their traditional role, you generated the kind of interest and income 
that was required. I'll give you one example. We uh, took uh, blind children sailing, and we would go out of the harbor, uh, uh, hoist the sails on one of the schooners, be sailing off around the Statue of Liberty, turn off the engine, and we'd ask the children to lie down on the deck and just listen. And so that they would hear the sound of the ocean, they'd hear the sound of the wind, they'd hear the functionality of the vessel as it moved through the water. And then before they went to sleep, we, we would wake them up and we would ask them, um, can you tell us what you saw? And what would come out of these young, young people's sensory translation of the experience that they could not actually see, but that they could hear and that they could feel. And to translate that into words was one of the most compelling outcomes of, of, of any educational uh, program I've ever been involved in. Inevitably, the, uh, the adults, the chaperones, the professionals that were, went along with um, would be in tears. We would all be in tears at the kind of innocence and beauty and, and uh, kind of clarity of what would come out of, of the experience. Well, it was successful so that it kept getting renewed and renewed and renewed, and it became a profit center of the museum. And museums don't have many ways to make money. They have endowments, they have subsidies, uh, they have grants, uh, and they have the, the, what we call the gate, the, the, the amount of people, the, the money that's derived to charge a fee. Well, it's rarely above 18% of your total revenue. So you need to build revenue. and. Uh, so our, our museum, like all the rest, in, the, in its old uh, conventional way, was always in the middle of a cash crisis. We never had enough money to do the things we wanted to do. Well, by turning into this community-driven educational service organization, we had a functionality that meant things beyond the people who were just already committed to, to old ships. And so foundations that would have never supported this before came forward with very generous support. Um, the capital campaign, because we were building places not just to display the exhibits, the artifacts, the scrimshaw, the paintings, the models, but also they were classrooms. So that the, the galleries became classrooms and the, the, the Harbor School, its first classes were actually held in the museum, in the galleries. Uh, so you had a public high school that was essentially invented and nurtured within a cultural institution. And then it went out and went on as it became more successful, but the spirit and philosophy remained. And the minute that, that the philosophy was changed after um, I, I, I moved on, uh, the museum reverted back to the old ways and to the old financial problems. Yeah, and which is sad because, you know, there's nothing more important than I feel having the ocean, the ocean as a classroom and, what you've done with those students that you had for at least those 20 years when you were telling your story. I mean, I, I felt myself being moved to tears. I can only imagine what it felt like for those students to have that experience, especially those that had never had something like that happen before. And I feel like you took everything that you knew and that you had worked on and you rolled it into your current project, which is the World Ocean Observatory. So you basically took the report of the Independent World Commission on the Oceans, which was published in 1998, and went right to work. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you built the World Ocean Observatory? 
Well, I, I found that report you mentioned, uh, and it was chaired by the former president of Portugal, Mario Suarez. Uh, and I, I found it in a dollar bin in the Cambridge uh, bookstore. My whole life changed. I mean, I suddenly realized that the ocean was a context for everything. And this report, which was not a UN report, it was an independent report made by 50 ocean experts and, and leaders around the world. So it transcended the conventional uh, uh, perspective on the ocean as species and habitat and related it to the rest of the, of the story, which is climate and fresh water and food and energy and trade and transportation and science, technology, um, uh, policy, governance, culture, ritual, um, ideas, uh, war, security, all of these things basically involve the ocean. And, and, and so I realized uh, that I could essentially create a kind of encyclopedic overview that integrated everything that I could pull together into one place using the economy and the efficiency of the, of the internet um, to provide all of that information to anyone who was curious, what I call the, the global uh, community of citizens of the ocean, uh, and that they would have access without, without barrier uh, to all this information to each other, uh, and they could share, uh, they could comment, they could cooperate, they could collaborate, they could become a kind of force uh, for political will that would bring ocean uh, issues more to the forefront. Uh, even today, if you look at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, um, they're all about you know, poverty and many, many, many important things, climate and poverty and all the rest fisheries. But the fact is that only one of the 14 uh, which is the ocean one, pertains to every one of the others. I mean, you can look at poverty and never understand the ocean, but you have to understand that the ocean has an enormous impact on, on world poverty or on refugees uh, or on food production or on energy creation or in trade and transportation and exchange, on financial markets, on communications. All of what we're doing just now in terms of this reporting if it is to be shared, it's shared through satellites or more, more, more importantly, through underground, underwater cables that link the world. These cables are the things that are down there on the ocean floor that nobody knows anything about, but it's carrying our telephone. Uh, it's carrying our internet. Uh, it's carrying our financial transactions. It's carrying our communications nation to nation. Um, uh, it, it, it has a tremendous, tremendous uh, physical presence in the unification of what we now call the, the you know, world globalization, where the world has shrunk uh, by virtue of all these connections. Uh, and, and, and that's an opportunity. That's a, that's a power that shouldn't necessarily be denied. It's inevitable. It can't really be denied, but it can be used and exploited for the benefit of all mankind. And that's basically what, what is underlying the whole idea of the World Ocean Observatory. The sea connects all things. And we, we, we communicate, we, we do this by using communications platforms. So we have audio, 
podcast, aggregated video, digital magazine, uh, internet forum, uh, educational curriculum development, um, an international maritime heritage film festival, um, a place where for students and teachers to share uh, ocean projects worldwide, uh, book publications, uh, and our virtual aquarium that we're developing uh, that will allow anywhere, any, uh, anyone, anywhere uh, on any device at any time to have an aquarium experience uh, that will look just like as if you'd gone to an aquarium, a physical aquarium um, in any city in the world, but it will be there and available to you at no charge. And it has within it a kind of curriculum design so it can be used by teachers for formal and informal education, by individuals who are just simply curious and want to know more. Um, uh, and it will also build, we believe, the, the interest. So our virtual aquarium called World Ocean Explorer uh, will essentially be an introduction to that experience. And we hope that, that it will build at that right age, at the secondary school level, a, a massive new uh, uh, generation of people who understand ocean functionality uh, through the various programs of the World Ocean Observatory. Yeah, and I, I believe you hit on a number of really important points there. I mean, I teach a number of UN Sustainable Development Goals in my class, but my focus has always been on number 14, which is life below water. And I had started a program called Project Blue at SCSU around that goal. And now I have students who have launched the Long Island Sound Ocean Cluster. And this digital aquarium that you're creating, I just found to be such an important tool because it'll open it up to students who, you know, maybe couldn't get out to the ocean, that you're creating this digital space, which is going to be, as you have uh, noted, as wide and deep and dynamic as the ocean itself. And, you know, I was hoping you could talk to our listeners a little bit about our ocean space itself, because, uh, you know, we all learn about the ocean, but it's only one ocean. And maybe you could talk about some of the examples you have of like students in Japan and the LA studying the same thing. The problem that exists in the, in the, in the, in the educational system is basically we have siloed the discipline. Uh, and we have, so we have chemistry, we have physics, we have biology, we have geography. Um, we have all these geology, we have all these, these things that are taught within silos. And yet they are all intimately interconnected. And there are all these obstacles that are built into the educational system that preclude that, that sharing or integration of understanding. So you have science uh, coordinators who don't, can't change the model. You have science teachers that don't know anything about physics and only care about chemistry. You have, you have administrators who, uh, can barely buy pencils and papers for their schools, and they don't really don't have an opportunity to innovate with the, with the curriculum. Uh, and this extends right up into the, to the university experience. You have majors, and then you have postgraduate uh, things, and everything becomes more and more and more specialized and narrower and narrower and narrower. Uh, and the same thing sort of happens in policy and in the, non, in the NGO world, the non-governmental organization world, everyone becomes a specialist. And so uh, that, that's very good in many ways because it has driven our understanding of ocean systems and um, uh, science in general. 
by this kind of brilliant uh, deep dive into one, into one subject. Uh, then two problems remain. What happens to that knowledge and how is it distributed? Uh, what happens to it is it drives scientific discovery and uh, technological development in many, many cases. All of these the things are wonderful. Uh, it may affect policy uh, in some places. Uh, it may force people to have evidence or documentation they can, they can show to prove that uh, one way of, of being or doing something is actually not not successful, it may be polluting, it may be uh, uh, debilitating to communities and so have social consequence. Uh, and yet, and here's another one where which, 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 which the outcomes are different. So that the, the, the knowledge is, is there, it's incredible, uh, and that's all very well and good. But how does it, it, it does by definition, draw a very tight circle around it in the context of the world population. And so you have, uh, you have people outside those disciplines who don't know anything about it. You have young people who are coming up through the educational system who are only being trained to think that way. And so you're kind of perpetuating the problem. Um, and my job is through the, the aquarium and everything else we do is to break those conventional barriers. And to say no, you don't have to be. If you have to, if you, can, you have to stay that way in your school system. Okay, but here's a way that you can get around it, uh, and here's a system that you can use that you can bring into your classroom and open it up at the curriculum level and at the classroom. So we have this thing called uh, another thing I mentioned is uh, our ocean space, and it's simply a place on our website where teachers and students can post their reports. And kids these days are so brilliant with the, with the technological tools and with communications. So they're building, you know, PowerPoints with videos and graphics and visualizations and data collections and all these kinds of things. And they're doing this in the fifth and the sixth and the seventh and the eighth grades. Uh, and so we created this space to, for people just to put these reports up so they can be shared. And the best example is uh, a school in, in Los Angeles uh, and a school in Japan, uh, basically were studying the same thing, the same phenomenon. They were looking at tide pools, let's say, in the Pacific, um, but, but on the California side and on the, uh, on the Japan Sea side. And, and, and the kids did their reports and then they put them up side by side. And so what did you learn? Well, you can learn all about the, the you can learn a lot about the science of the, of, the, of the places and the systems and the functionalities. You can see the difference in one locale versus the, the, the uh, difference in the other locale. But most importantly, that you can see that the, the systems overlap. The systems are simultaneous, simultaneous. The same basic principle, uh, principles are in play. And those laws become sort of universal. Those, 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 uh, that understanding that informs uh, your, your understanding of science in general. Uh, and you begin to be able to uh, broaden your perspective, not only in terms of what you know, but who you learn with. So if somehow you're learning of kids in Southern California, kids in Japan are kind of learning side by side, 
That's a kind of international exchange that is priceless, absolutely priceless. Many of those children may not even know that there is something called Japan. You know, everybody's uh, optimism is being challenged these days, and I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm not so blindly optimistic that I'm not attempting to. I have hope by virtue of a whole lot of people coming to the conclusion uh, about these things, about environmental protection and sustainability at the same time. Uh, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic in some ways by the fact that the markets, the, the financial markets, have realized that the, that the age of oil is over uh, and that the, uh, the opportunities for, for uh, alternative investment, uh, they, many investors are already late to that party. Um, I'm optimistic by the fact that we have young people who want to, um, um, uh, are studying environmental uh, systems and, and policy and law. Um, uh, and they are, they are looking for new careers and they're looking for new outlets of that value system uh, in, in, their, in, their, in their behaviors uh, and in their politics and in the expression of their values. I'm hopeful um, because there are individuals who you applying these values are making are beginning to make pretty substantial uh, 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 differences, changes that are being advocated uh, and invented. Uh, we talk about uh, adaptation and mitigation of climate and ocean ocean uh, circumstances. I don't, those are good things. We have to, we have to do that in the short term. But the way we're going to solve this problem is through invention. So I am optimistic by the hundreds of startups that are essentially applying these values to new, to new products, to new ways of applying uh, the, the ocean, ocean resources, uh, to new systems for technology and water, uh, water treatment. Um, Desalination is the only way we're going to go. We will have to desalinate water from the ocean very soon. It's beginning in some places. Some countries are already totally reliant, reliant on desalinated water. Some countries have cities that are mostly reliant on desalinated water. But we will have to do the same very soon because we're depleting or polluting our aquifers and our freshwater systems and the ocean as well. So unless we can find a way to create an adequate supply of fresh water through desalination, uh, we, will, we, will not, we will not survive. Um, and finally, we need to look at our institutions and understand that if you're a university and you have an endowment, or if you're a foundation and you have investments, or if you have a 501c, I mean, a, a 401k, what are you investing in? And you need to be able to say, I am not going to invest in these companies that are indifferent to these values. And more and more you see this happening, but it is taking forever. Harvard University resisted and resisted and resisted and only recently has come to a kind of halfway place for divesting itself of fossil fuel, fossil fuel and other kinds of polluting uh, entities. These are the things that will make a difference. Finally, institutions like churches um, and civic organizations 
they have to come around and see, understand that their health is um, is dependent on this as well. I mean, the, the, the coalition of, of, of religions uh, and the Pope, Pope Francis uh, in, uh, in his encyclical 2005, in, in talks about the ocean as the absolute essence of, 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 of how the world works and how we must preserve that as we are preserve our, uh, the, the, the tenets of religion, the aspirations of religion, uh, and, and the, the best um, uh, of, of human civilization. So there's an enormous amount at stake here. This is not some, some little guy on a soapbox. Uh, you know, ranting and raving about some kind of snake oil medicine, trying to sell you a bill of goods. No, I'm talking about the, a thing that matters and accrues to the benefit of all mankind. And if we don't pay attention, we will pay. Due to some technical issues today, a lot of uh, this interview has been cut short. We had about 20 more minutes of audio from Peter, and unfortunately, we can't share that with you. Just the audio quality uh, cuts out enough, as you may have heard a little bit, to not warrant it staying in, unfortunately. But we want to say thank you to Peter Neal for joining us today, because this is, in my opinion, one of the better conversations I've heard on the podcast recently, and I'm really pleased with all the points he had to make so please take what he said with you today and we apologize for this episode being shorter than usual with all that said we have a lot of opportunities as a populace to focus on not only ocean issues for the sake of our ocean but also for the sake of our societies our uh, sustainable goals as peter said relate back to the ocean and we have this opportunity to use this vital resource in all corners of the globe for all sorts of reasons. And so I just want to say thank you for some of the things he pointed out today and that it's not too late and it's not impossible for any of us to get involved. We at Blue Earth and at Future Frogmen like to say that anyone can be an ocean advocate, anybody can be on the side of the future. So have conversations, speak out, make action when you can, try to maintain a smaller footprint and make the world and our waters a better place thank you peter thank you colleen and thank you listeners for um checking in today and staying with us so uh if you like today's episode we post them every week so you'll get one next week as well and you can find us at www.futurefrogmen.org or on social media at future frogmen thank you as always for being involved and listening and we hope to see you next week